Welcome to 40,000 Steps Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Heimerman, and I am not a licensed healthcare professional, not a doctor, not a counselor, not a therapist. No, I'm a guy with 743 days of sobriety, and I've got the gumption to put my story out there. So what's with the cowbell, right? Well, my guest on this podcast, Miguel Reyes, or we know him better as Migs, well, he's celebrating a sober anniversary. Matter of fact, the day before this podcast airs, he celebrated three years. Join me in congratulating him. Join me for story time. This guy can tell some stories, man, and he's got a lot of them to tell. So buckle up. I'm looking out the window, and it happens to be a beautiful day to get our 40,000 steps in. Let's get it. All right, gang. So Migs, he's not unique in this way, but he is about to tell you a number of stories in which there was a golden opportunity to realize that he had a drinking problem, a severe drinking problem, and it was time to get some help. Like I said, he's not unique in that way. The same goes for me and the same goes for virtually everybody in recovery. Folks who haven't spent enough time in the recovery community, and even some who have, You know, they think that there has to be this Hollywood blockbuster rock bottom, right? Well, if you've listened to me over the course of this podcast, you know that I cannot stand the term rock bottom because it doesn't have to exist. You don't have to hit a rock bottom. You can choose your own turnaround point. And if you're looking for a rock bottom, usually it's a false bottom and there's an even lower bottom below that, folks. So... It's a beautiful way that Migs found his turnaround point. And it's a little deep into the conversation. So you got to hang with us until we get there. But you're going to be so doggone entertained. You know, this guy can uh this guy can turn a phrase, he can tell a great story. Some of them are going to make you laugh. Some of them might kind of bring you to your knees and shake your head and feel for Migs and his journey and then feel for the people around him in his journey. But the beautiful thing is, this is what's always important. Like, you know, we're going to talk a lot in this podcast about life and addiction, right? Because that resonates with so many people listening to this, but the end goal is always to flip it to the present and celebrate how incredible life is on this side of the addiction. Because that made all the difference in the world for me was when I stopped feeling like I was running away from alcoholism and addiction and when I realized that I was running toward something great. Well, Miguel's got something great. You know, he's got a little guy, he's got a beautiful wife, and he's got a great life. He has his own recovery and fitness community on Facebook. Check it out. They're like 600 members strong, 600 plus uh, members strong. It's called Staying Fit. ODAT, that's O-D-A-A-T. And for those who aren't familiar with it, of course, O-D-A-A-T stands for one day at a time. So staying fit ODAT, 
is on Facebook. You can also find them on Instagram and people from all walks of life share their stories. Some people in long-term recovery, some people are kind of hanging out in the background and looking for this community and they'll reach out to him months in to their uh, membership in the group and they'll say, hey man, today's day one for me. So no matter where you're coming from, no matter what sort of fitness journey you're in, check out Staying Fit ODAT and follow, uh, you can find it through the Facebook page or just go on to any of these platforms, podcasting platforms, and search for the same name, Staying Fit ODAT. Migs has his own podcast and it is terrific. He even featured yours truly on an episode recently and we had a blast. So look for that everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Now, before we dive into our conversation with Miguel, he was fortunate in that he didn't have to go to rehab to get clean, but I did and I'm eternally grateful for it. And I want to tell you more about the place where I went to treatment, Gateway Foundation in Aurora, Illinois. They've got centers throughout the state. If drugs or alcohol are starting to take over your life, it's time to get honest with yourself and get help. These days, many people are at home or out of work, and the temptation to turn to alcohol and drugs to cope with stress and anxiety is stronger than ever before, right? Stop using now before it's too late. Gateway Foundation is here for you and your family with life-saving inpatient as well as virtual programs, so you can access the help you need from the privacy of your own home. Don't wait to get help that you or a loved one needs. Most insurance plans are accepted. Call Gateway Foundation now at 877-505-HOPE. That's 877-505-4673 to schedule a free confidential consultation, or you can visit gatewayfoundation.org and get the help that you need today. So if you have the slightest inkling that you or someone who you love that they might have a problem, look, I'm going to shoot you straight. Odds are the smart money says that there is a problem there. Reach out to somebody at Gateway. Find the clearest path to recovery. All right, I promise you some stories. These are good ones. This is my conversation with my dear, dear friend, Migs. Hey, so you've got some exciting stuff going on. Yes, sir. Now, I just to kind of pull the curtain back and lose the illusion for the folks listening, the, uh, the podcast drops on Tuesday, June 1st. However, we're recording this on Wednesday, May 26th. Monday, the 31st, is your three-year soberversary, which is just amazing. And even though it's a couple of days out, technically, with this little time hop that we're doing, I'm going to ring the cowbell. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. This, this kind of brings to mind, uh, you know, everybody's kind of got varying opinions about this because I, I'm going to use your phrase. Like, how, how are you going to get to your, your three-year soberversary? How are you going to do it? One day at a time. <laughs> but how do you feel about looking forward to goals? Like, we're a few days away. I mean, uh, how do you sort of balance that one day at a time while like looking forward to something? It's kind of like running a race, isn't it? A hundred percent. And, and I heard, and I heard the cowbell going off. So I can, I can tell you right now, um, especially since we're already talking about it, I might just like lock myself in a room and close the doors and, and just hide away until Monday. So that way I can make sure that nothing gets screwed up. Um, but, uh, it's aside from even being sober, anything, my mom has always been like growing up one of those, like you don't celebrate anything early. It's bad luck, blah, blah, blah. And so like, when it comes to my sober birthday, you know, 
since like anything else, like you're celebrating a normal birthday. Like the only thing that can screw your actual birthday coming up is like dying. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> right. Aside from that, but there's a lot of things that can screw up uh, a sober birthday. Um, so it's like, for me, it's one of those things that I've been trying to take serious and trying not to celebrate too early, trying not to take it for granted. But at the same time, I think I have a pretty good grasp on my program and my sobriety right now. And I feel like I'm doing the right things. And especially over the next few days, I'm going to be around the right people. So, um, yeah, it would, uh, it, it, I would probably end up in a hospital from someone doing something to me if I even tried to pick up a drink at this point, just because <laughs> the people I'm going to be around for the next few days, like to quote my best friend, you're going to have to fight me to drink in front of me. That's awesome, man. It takes a village. It absolutely takes a village. So going back to your, your mom's outlook on things, does this mean that you guys were a strictly Christmas day family? You didn't do the Christmas Eve gifts? Well, we do, we do a Christmas. See, that's ironic. We do a Christmas Eve. My mom always did a Christmas Eve party, but she, uh, you know, we weren't very religious growing up. So it wasn't like we didn't celebrate Christmas for, for the, the religion aspect of it and whatnot. It was more or less like, you know, a reason to get all the family together. And especially because I came from a, uh, a, a separated household between my mom and my dad. So I think what started off as like a Christmas Eve with my mom and a Christmas with my dad kind of turned into the tradition. Like it just kind of kept going as I got older. And like, even as, um, even as I got married and whatnot, and my brother got married and my sister got married, it's like, everyone goes to my mom's on Christmas Eve and then we all go to our like significant others on Christmas day. So it's like one of those things that started off as like a one tradition growing up and it's kind of worked for, for our families as well in our adult years. Yeah. We, we were a strictly Christmas day family. So I'd always get really pissed off and jealous when the other kids were opening their gifts on Christmas Eve. <laughs> I remember one time my mom gave us like normally like growing up, it would always be like a Christmas Eve party for family coming over um, but like we would, when we were kids, we would still open up presents on Christmas morning, um, before I would go to my dad's. And I remember one Christmas Eve, like my mom kind of like splurged that year and like, she gave us like half of our Christmas presents on Christmas Eve. Let's kind of start there, you know, in terms of like your upbringing, because like you said, you came from a, uh, from a separated household and I mean, your parents had you when they were just puppies, right? Uh, your parents were what, uh, 16, 17 years old, something like that? Uh, my mom had me, I was my mom's 17th birthday present. My mom, I was born August 17th and my mom's birthday is August 20th. So she was just, she was technically 16, about to turn 17. And my dad had just turned 19 that June. So you're finally the gift that keeps on giving. I, I guess, I mean, I probably started off as a handful and probably <laughs> annoying. And I mean, looking back, I realized I was completely this unplanned shit. I can, I can just. Dude, you were a lump of coal that became a diamond, man. Yeah, absolutely. I was, I was a burden. I was whatever you could call it. Um, you know, I, I, <laughs> um, but you know, they, they stuck it out, especially my mom doing what she had to do. Luckily my grandparents on, on my mom's side were very, very active uh, they did a lot of the raising of me as far as like being home with me. My grandfather worked, my mom or uh, my grandmother did sewing machine stuff, but I think she was already out of work or laid off or something like that as a kid. I don't remember ever actually seeing my grandmother go to work. So she, she played a very, very big role between being at our house or us being over at their house. And, uh, yeah, my, my mom and dad actually split up when I was two, they each remarried, each had two more kids. 
so I'm technically the oldest of five, but with two on each side, I have a brother and sister on each side. And yeah, it was, it was all pretty close. Your grandparents were pretty nurturing. There was a good, good situation. Yeah, for sure. So my, my grandfather, I guess not, not that I guess I know he wasn't like my technical biological grandfather. Okay. Um, but you couldn't tell me any otherwise, because honestly, I'm not even sure if I ever met my biological grandfather on my mom's side. If I did, I don't remember him. I couldn't even tell you his name. And, uh, I guess with no disrespect to him, I, I could care less what his name is because I was raised by, I was raised by the man that I know. Um, yeah. and unfortunately he has passed away. He passed away when I was a senior in high school, but that was my grandfather. Like you couldn't tell me he was a step grandfather. You couldn't tell me anything otherwise. Um, but he, uh, he, he, him and I were like really, really close. He's the one that got me into football. He made me a Steelers fan. Um, I just remember sitting back watching the games, hearing him tell all the old stories about the Steelers of the seventies. Cause he grew up in the Pittsburgh area and just like telling me all these cool stories that I used to love. Um, unfortunately I never got to watch them win a Super Bowl with him. Cause the, uh, the two Super Bowls that the Steelers have won since I've been alive, um, yeah, unfortunately, yeah. have both been since he passed. Uh, the only time we even got to watch them in a Super Bowl was uh, 1995, watch them lose. But uh, one quick story I have on that, which is really cool. Um, so he passed away November, December. I forget the exact month, but it was the winter. It was the winter of 2005. And um, that year... The uh, the Steelers were playing against the Jets in the playoffs. It was uh, Ben Roethlisberger. I think it was his rookie year. And they're playing against the Jets. And the, the Jets are going for like a putt of a field goal. It's like it's it's unbelievably short. It's in the playoffs. And all they got to do is make the field goal and they win. And that ball shanked so hard left. I remember looking at my mom and looking around and said, Pappy pushed it. Pappy yeah. pushed it. <laughs> and just like screaming, like freaking out. Um, and just like, oh man, you couldn't tell me it was anything otherwise. Like if you believed in anything spiritual at that moment, you couldn't tell me anything otherwise. It was so cool. Oh, that's so awesome. Brett Favre's dad got nothing on Pappy, right? No, for sure not. For sure. <laughs> Unfortunately, we didn't get the Super Bowl, but I'll take it. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. That's awesome. Now, I mean, the nurturing nature of your grandparents was clutch for you wasn't it because uh you know growing up with your dad like you in your case like you didn't pick up a drink significantly until like your late teen years or almost until you were uh of age but growing up with your dad your, your dad was was a pretty bad alcoholic yeah my dad was a full full-blown alcoholic drug addict i think a, i think the only thing that I don't have recollection of my dad doing, and, and I don't want to just put this out there too bad because I didn't necessarily see him doing all of this stuff, but it was- Well, you guys have a relationship now. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, I mean, I'd seen my dad drink uh, profusely. I'd seen him smoke weed, but he had done, to my knowledge, he had done every other drug except shoot up heroin is the only thing I've never heard of him doing. But I mean, I was, I was told that if it was a pill or a rock, he would swallow it or smoke it. Like it didn't matter. And I, I, he, he was full blown. I remember as a kid, I didn't know, I didn't truly understand what an alcoholic was. Of course. Um, I didn't even understand that, you know, this liquid that comes in this can or this bottle that he's drinking is what was changing his behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, I couldn't put those things together. It actually wasn't until this one particular night. And I tell this story a lot. My dad's thing with me was bowling every on the weekends that he had me every Friday and Sunday that weekend, we would go bowling. 
And on one particular Friday night, we were coming home. We were getting ready to leave the bowling alley. And uh, keep in mind, my dad was always like, and this is, must be where I got it from. Like he always got beer muscles and he would drink. He would always try and like fight people, pick fights, do this, do that. And for some reason, it would always be like the biggest person around. And I must have got that from him because I started doing that when I started drinking, which we'll talk about more. Like the prison yard mentality, like trying to pick a- <laughs> uh, man, it. It was so bad. It was so bad. And I still think to this day, laughing back, like, you know, thank God there were some half decent people who weren't as as drunk as he was and realized the situation because I feel like I might have saved my dad from I mean, I don't I don't want to say I like saved him from ass whoopings because he could have handled his own and he would have, you know, I mean, it's not like he would have like cowered down, you know. However, um, I believe I saved him from quite a few physical altercations and finding out how bad they could have been because I think a lot of times people just like saw me with him and were like, Man, I'm not gonna fight this guy in front of right, his kid. Right. Like that's just and I think it was like one of those a lot of times. So but anyway, we were uh we're Getting ready to leave the bowling alley. And I remember my dad, one of his good friends at the time, was pretty much trying to convince him not to let me in the car. Like, don't drive with him. Don't drive with him. I'll drive him home. And my dad being uh, the stubborn guy that he was, he pretty much, no, no, no. He's my son. I'm taking him. I'm taking him. And I don't remember too, too much of the argument. Um, I just kind of remember them going back and forth because I was probably like somewhere between the age of like eight and 10 at this point, maybe even younger. But uh, I remember being in the back seat. And when I say the back seat, I mean, I should say the back floor. They had me sit on a case of beer. It was my dad and like three or four of his other friends. And I was sitting on top of a case of beer on the floor in front of my dad's friend's legs. And uh, it pretty much I was I was their beer guy. Anytime anybody's can was empty, I was handing them the beer wow. while they were in the car. Yeah. And my dad got into a car accident. They kind of hit like headlight to headlight. And so when my dad got out arguing with this guy and the guy was arguing back, they eventually ended up kind of like, I just remember this moment where like they kind of like laughed and like shook hands or fist bumped or whatever. And they both got back in their cars. I mean, it never, that part never really got talked about, but what I could only imagine now after understanding in my adult years and doing some of this shady, stupid, illegal stuff now, I can only imagine that they probably both realized that either a, they were both drunk yeah. or, or the other driver wasn't insured either way. For whatever reason, they didn't want the cops there. Yeah. So yeah. So they both got back in their cars, and it was at that point where the same guy who was trying to convince my dad not to drive with me actually boxed my dad into like the little parking lot that was like right next to him, and that's when he kind of told him like, "No, it's it's gone too far. You either let Miguel out of the car, or I'm calling the police." And it took like the threat of police for my dad to actually let me out of the car, and that's what like kind of scared me. Like shit, that was like my first experience with a car accident. Yeah. So it obviously it, it shook the shit out of me, and I remember like I would start then I like I started paying attention to the whole drinking thing. Things started making sense, and so I didn't want my dad drinking anymore. But I loved spending time with my dad. I loved going bowling. I loved being around his friends that were you know fairly responsible and. It was just like everybody else was just drinking and having a good time. I mean, shit, they could have all been raging alcoholics for all I know, but they weren't the ones taking me home. So how would I know any better? Right, right. To me, they were just they were just cool people having a good time. But I remember this. I guess it was a counselor or I don't remember who or why it was, but I got sent home with this piece of paper one day and it said my mom and my dad were trying to figure out like custody or, or supervision or however it was working out. And I had this piece of paper and I had to write down things I wanted on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember writing down like 
I want to, I want to spend equal amount of time with both. And on like, on the side for my dad, it was like, I think there was like somewhere on there where it said like things you want or things you don't want or whatever. But I just remember writing, like, I don't want my dad drinking. Mm -hmm. And that's all I, that's all I wrote on his side is no drinking. You're how old at that time? I was probably actually about eight. Cause I was actually at my aunt's house filling out this paper at this point. I just remember just writing like he can't drink. And that's all I cared about was just like my dad doesn't drink when I'm around him. And then for a while he would pretend he wasn't drinking and, you know, he would, you know, have all those alcoholic tendencies, putting him in different cups, doing different things and, and all that, you know, jazz to try and hide it and whatnot. But I figured out eventually that he was still drinking just based off of like, you know, he'd be in this great mood. He would be in this mood when we got here. And why is he acting so different by the time we're leaving? Yeah. Um, and I, I started realizing things. And, you know, as I get older, it starts to make more sense. I remember one time he uh, coming into the room, me and my cousins, like my brother, my little brother on his side had a Super Nintendo. And I remember me and my two cousins were playing it and my brother was sleeping. And my dad just comes in and unplugs the Nintendo and he's like, he pretty much pretended he was punishing us that we were being too loud or we were doing this and that. And what I realized was actually he was, he was giving it to the, he was giving it to the dope man. Oh man. And I don't know if it was to pay off a debt or to get, to get more or whatever the case may be, but you know, it was one of those, I'm pretending I'm punishing you, but I realized the truth later. Yeah. That's rough. Yeah, it was terrible. And then having to explain to my little brother that, you know, we got in trouble the night before and dad took the Nintendo. And I don't even know if he ever told him the truth about that or if it ever even got talked about again, because I was only there on the weekend. So two days later, I was back with my mom. What's really heartbreaking about that, though, is then years later, we came to understand that we would beg, borrow, steal, and lie, that we would sell things off in order to feed our addiction and justify it and and keep, uh, keep the party going. A hundred percent. And this is actually when my dad was in, uh, to just be blunt, not as this, he was, he was like full blown into crack cocaine at this point. Okay. Anything and everything he was, he was in and out of jail. Um, my entire childhood, uh, to my knowledge, actually, he never actually went in for like anything drug related. Um, I believe he only ever went in for DUIs and I know he went in a fuck ton of times for child support. Yeah. Like a lot of times to the point where like, I remember my mom would actually like try and like tell the judge because my mom knew that I just love my dad so much. And my mom knew that she was like being in jail wasn't going to do anything for him as far as her getting child support. So a lot of times she would actually tell like the counselor, like, just let him out. Like, I don't even want to prosecute fully. And it got to the point where like, even they were like, no, this is like above us. Like we just, we have to lock him up. He's got to do this. And so I always swore to myself, like, I'm never going to drink. I'm never going to do drugs. The shit is terrible. I'm not going to be like this. I'm going to be better. Cause I also watched my dad like in physical altercations with, uh, with my stepmom, with my mom, I seen him do, you know, some pretty, some pretty shitty things. I remember one time actually seeing him get into a full blown fist fight with my mom in, in that same, uh, apartment that the Nintendo was pretty much bartered in. I remember something Something along the lines of my mom found out he was doing something in the house that he wasn't supposed to be doing when I was there. And my mom just come like blasting through the door and they got into like a full blown rumble in the kitchen um, until my uncle and my stepmom broke it up. And I'm talking like full blown like fist fight, like two grown men going at it. Yeah. 
uh and it was it was pretty scary like i said that was just like a constant cycle of my childhood just watching all of this happen and I, I just swore I would I would never be that guy, and I I identify with that because I wa- I watched my brothers and my dad fight on a regular basis. You know, I watched them put my parents through hell, and so yeah, I, I had the same pledge that I would never be that you know that shitty kid who continued that cycle for my parents, but yet you grow up and no matter how much we try to dig our heels into the sand like that, that's, that's programmed into us. You know, we, we see that that sticks with us and it's written in our, in our genetics too. Like it's in us, but in high school, you, you smoked, sold weed, no alcohol yet until I guess walk through, uh, what predicated the, the shift from marijuana to drinking. Actually in, in high school, um, you know, I was actually thinking about this recently as well. And I actually realized that like, I didn't actually smoke in high school either. I was selling weed in high school, but I actually wasn't really smoking it. Cause I figured, um, I, w- I was starting to learn numbers really quickly and I figured this will take away from my profit margin. <laughs> so I didn't really want to, I didn't want to sell it. Although I had no issues or no qualms with weed whatsoever. Cause I was like, I think that was the only thing that I never noticed that like my dad would like act differently on. Um, you know, the few times I saw him smoke weed, I never, I never like he never acted different. And it was like, so the only thing that never really changed his behavior. So I guess it was the only thing I never really had an issue with, which is probably it doesn't make it justified. But I think that's why I also didn't have a problem selling it because I was like, this isn't killing anybody. This isn't hurting anybody. This isn't ruining anyone's children. This is just, it's just weed. Yeah. Like I knew my uncles were smoking weed. I knew I had uncles that were selling weed. I had cousins that were selling weed. So it was easy to get it and it was easy to sell it. So I was just doing my thing, making money. And, uh, you know, it was all good. And then when I was 18, my twins were born. My ex got pregnant when I was in high school, uh, my senior year of high school. And my twins were born in the October after I graduated high school, just two months after I turned 18. And I got into a fight with her and, you know, I was just hanging out with my friends and listening to rap music and whatnot. And, you know, you know, every, all these songs talk about that baby mama drama and this and that. And, you know, just me being irresponsible and stupid, that's kind of what I chalked it up to. And that was, uh, that was when I started smoking weed. Uh, I was, I was 18 years old. Um, to this point in my life, I could actually, I think I'd maybe tried smoking weed one time. Mm -hmm. Um, and I had drank maybe, maybe two or three times in my life. Actually, it only ever been drunk once. The first two times I drank, I actually did one of those like you pretend you're drunk so that way people stop <laughs> giving you drinks. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I think it was a mixture of like wanting the attention of seeming drunk and that seeming cool, and also not wanting the pressure of being continued to force to drink because I didn't really want to actually get drunk. I'm not really into that shit, and I I start smoking finally, and then weirdly enough, I actually quit selling weed. But I had a sports bet wager with a friend and I lost. And then we did a double or nothing and I lost again. I pretty much, I owed my buddy like a hundred bucks or so. And uh, he got into a car accident, which I didn't know about. Um, And I guess I'm using the term buddy very lightly after you'll hear what he did to me. Uh, What I thought was a friend. So he got into a car accident that I didn't know about. This was his second DUI. And he got caught with weed in his car and he was scared of the little bit of trouble he would have got into. 
and he lied to the police and told them he got it from me, mm. which was actually completely not true because I was done selling weed at the point. Mm -hmm. And he, the reason he did that is because he knew that I owed him money and that I was still smoking weed. So he knew that I would do this favor for him. So he reaches out to me and says, Hey, you owe me X. Uh, you know, I need, he pretty much got me to get him like $200 worth, $220 worth of weed when I owed him a hundred dollars. So the deal was like, he'll give me $120. I'll give him this weed. We'll call it a day. We're even. Oh no. Yeah. I, I see where this is going. A hundred percent. So this was like a couple days after a payday. So I had paycheck money in one pocket. I was also selling bootleg movies. So I had some of the movies, uh, some of the movie money in my other pocket um, from some people that I just dropped off movies from because I was on my way to work at this point. So I make this little pit stop for this guy and I give him the weed. He gives me the money. I put it in my pocket. I pull out of the parking lot. And this is the part that like blows my mind because I already said I'm a Steelers fan. And so this is the part that's like burnt into my memory forever. <laughs> There's this guy. I see, I see a, a cop in a cop car with like his lights are flashing, but it's a four-way stop. And I didn't know the neighborhood I was in at the time. So when I finally realized, oh shit, there's a school across the street. That's why the cops lights are on. It's like a crossing guard type thing. I didn't think anything of it. I stop at the four-way stop sign. I go through the stop sign, not thinking anything. I'm actually not even nervous. I'm not even worried at this point. I'm thinking all is good. And the, uh, the cop pulls then behind me. And when he pulls behind me, this guy is pushing a baby stroller. And he's got a Franco Harris jersey on. And for my non-football fans, that's a Steelers player. Yeah, that's a hero. And yes, he's someone from the 70s. Someone I heard his name many, many times from those stories I told you from my grandfather. So that's why this is like burnt into my head. He's pushing a baby stroller. He opens up the baby stroller and pulls a gun out. And he jumps on the hood of my car. Literally like box jumped right on the hood of my car pointing it right through the windshield, stop the car, throw the keys out the window, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, holy shit, what is going on? This seems a little excessive for dealing weed. At the time, it hadn't even processed that like I was getting in trouble for dealing weed. I I'll be honest with you. There was like two minutes where I was legitimately like, what the fuck? Dude, they got the wrong guy. Like mistaken identity type thing. Like, you know, I'm Puerto Rican. I'm in a white neighborhood. Like I legitimately for a second, I, and I like, I've heard there was like a, uh, I guess like 30 seconds to a minute where I legitimately thought like mistaken identity and I'm just doing everything these fucking police say. So that way I don't get shot or beaten like some shit out of a movie. So I put my hands out the window and they rip me out of the car. They throw me on the floor. They're doing their thing. And like, this is when I realized what just happened. So he pulls money out of my pocket and he slams it on the car and he goes, no. And he pulls money out of my other pocket and he slams it on the car and he goes, no. And he pulls money out of a third pocket and he like rifles through it and he says, got it. And I'm thinking in my head for like a second, got it. The fuck? <laughs> Son of a bitch. Like that's where I just put this money. This guy just it finally occurs to you. Yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. I, I go in and you know, that's when they start telling me, you know, this is marked money and you know, it was this and it was that and blah, blah, blah. And I end up going, dealing with court for a while. I, what they end up coming down with, because I wouldn't cooperate with them and I wouldn't give any names. I, I you know, I figured, fuck, I mean, I, I fucked up. I'm just going to take my charges like a man. Like I screwed up. I'm going to deal with the consequences. So you take a plea deal, right? Yeah, I take a plea deal. And what they did was they gave me state parole, like a suspended sentence. It was so long ago. I forget exactly how they worded it, but pretty much the gist of it was 
Um, it was a little bit different pro from uh, standard probation in the aspect of if I if I would violate, they had they had the ability to pretty much send me upstate for the remainder of my sentence. I think they sentenced me to three to five years, and I was it was like immediate parole or something like that. How they worded it, pretty much. So I technically never did a day in jail. Yeah, but that still wasn't enough. Like that's when I actually started uh, drinking. Uh, because I had to start now going in and I had to start taking these piss tests. And at that point now, by the time everything got said and done and I got prosecuted, uh, November 3rd, 2008, I had just turned 21. So there's no way that this 21 year old is going to stay completely sober when he's 21 years old. Uh, the job that I had, they said it was for performance reasons, but really they didn't want me working there because they found out what I did. So they pretty much found a way to wean me out. And right. so I was getting unemployment, which was a hefty amount at the time. So I'm not working. I'm making a decent amount of money, not working more than enough money to pay my bills at the time. And so I had this girl that I was dating and, you know, just like a lot of 21 year olds, that's when I started finding myself in the bars. Mm -hmm. um, I was just doing my thing, uh, pretty much drinking and driving every night, yeah. even though you know, I'm not supposed to be, didn't really get caught. For, I, I got caught one time, which is another fun story. So my, my parole officer told me, if you ever get arrested, if you ever have an encounter with the police, you need to tell me first, I need to find out first. If I, uh, if you're ever arrested, they'll have to, they'll run your name. They'll find out that you're on, um, probation parole and they will notify me. And if that happens, um, and it wasn't from you first, then I will violate your ass and you will go to jail. Yeah. And I said, all right, cool. That's understandable. So I got my, I got uh, a DUI driving home from a bar one night, go figure. Um, and the, the irony too, is like so many people's DUI stories. Um, I was actually already home and went <laughs> back out to go drop someone off. And then I contemplated like, should I go home or should I go to this after party? And I decided to go to the after party. And I was like a mile away from where I was going. And I got pulled over for driving too slow. <laughs> uh, cop told me that no one is driving that slow <clears throat> at 2.30 in the morning unless they got something to hide. So it pretty much he pulled me over. He I, I do a sobriety test. I get arrested. Um, I get back to my house. By the time I get out of the, uh, the DUI unit and all that, it's like five o'clock in the morning, something like that. And right before I finally lay down to go to sleep, I call, I call my parole officer. I leave a message on his phone saying what happened. And so the next morning I wake up at like 10 o'clock in the morning. However early it was, there's like banging on my front door. And I look through the peephole and it's him. And first he immediately busts my balls. Oh, you're hung over. <laughs> and immediately, I'm not even going to deny this at this point. Like you already know what I did. So I'm just like, yeah, whatever. And he goes, you know, I came over here to arrest you and violate you because he had gotten, he had listened to his voicemails when he got into his office and <clears throat> I guess they play newest, newest to oldest. So <clears throat> he had actually gotten the message from the police that they had arrested one of his, uh, one of his people and blah, blah, blah. And then he listened, like he was already in his car on his way to me and listened to the rest of the messages and then <laughs> so found- It's yours last, even though yeah. it was first, right? So he gets, he gets mine last and you know, he was like, I was on my way to arrest you and I was going to violate you and lock you up, but I did get your message. And um, he's actually a pretty cool dude. Like he sat on my sofa for a minute and pretty much like, dude, what the fuck are you doing with your life? Like, 
you know, get your shit together. Like I could easily lock you up. Instead, he just he made parole a lot stricter for me. So this is one of what's what's bound to be dozens upon dozens of potential come to Jesus moments. A hundred percent. I almost <laughs> got away with the DUI altogether because the cop pulls me over and you know he goes, Why are you driving so slow? Anybody who's driving that slow gotta be up to no good, blah blah blah. I already said that part. I immediately I'm really good at thinking on my feet. And this part was kind of true. I just bought in the car off of someone, maybe not even a week ago. So I said, no, I just bought this car off someone and it's raining right now. So I don't know how the tires are. I don't know how this car drives in bad weather. I'm just trying to be safe. So uh, the cop kind of buys that story for a little bit because I'm actually, I'm not like shit face. Like my blood alcohol was like a 0.13, which for, for a veteran, you know, we, we hold ourselves pretty well when you're, I wasn't even double the limit yet. Mm -hmm. So I think he's kind of buying that story for like two seconds. This is also only like two blocks away from a police station. So I don't know. I guess it's like a shift change or something. And another cop comes the other way driving like towards us. And he like stops, looks over at the cop and he goes, everything good tonight. And he goes, yeah, I thought I thought maybe a potential DUI, but um, he seems all right. And I just realized I don't have any breathalyzers in my car anyways. I'm, I'm just going to let it go. Oh, and the cavalry arrived and he had breathalyzers. And and he goes, oh, I just started shift. Oh. I have a fresh pack or whatever <laughs> what I he got? says to him. <laughs> Motherfucker. Oh. oh, yeah. And I still remember too, like the, the cop, the cop, like, I think he really didn't want me to do that, but he had to do his job at this point because he had already, you know, said what he said. My mom meets me down at the DUI center and they had her sign this paper that said pretty much she was responsible for me for the next 12 hours. If anything would have happened to me, like as far as like me getting in a vehicle, drinking and driving, blah, 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 she could have been held just as much responsible. So she drops me off in my house and like she's outside with me for probably like 30 minutes. We're just sitting in her car and she's just laying into me like get your shit together. You were just, you were just convicted. You got a felony on your record. Now at this time, mean, keep in mind, I have my twins are three years old and I'm, I'm choosing to be out partying instead of being with them because me and their mom aren't together. But even though you're absentee in that way, you're still in their lives. Uh, if I'm being honest, I wasn't really too much. And I would, I would like come and go. Like I was in their lives as far as like paying child support, but it would be one of those like, all right, you can come over and you can see them this day. And I would go over and like an hour later, two hours later, I would make an excuse that I had to go do something or be somewhere because I wanted to go out partying with my friends. I wanted to go hit the bars and you know, it was, I was a shitty person. So my mom is pretty much telling me like, you have these kids that, you know, you're, you pushing to the side and you know, you already have a felony and now you got a DUI. And at this point, she doesn't know if they're going to violate me. She goes, for all you know, you could be going to jail in the morning when you're, when your PO finds out and like, what the fuck are you going to do? Like, get your life together, figure this shit out, blah, blah, blah. She pretty much calls me everything except an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. um, Cause I don't think she ever used those words towards me until I actually said it myself. So, uh, you know, I shrug it off. No, I'm just 21. I'm having fun, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, just all that typical dumb shit. So several years go by. When do you decide that you want to mulligan on being a dad? Uh, I'm with my wife. Well, she's my girlfriend at the time. And I remember, you know, I was actually drunk when I said this. I said, I want another, I want a kid. And she, as politely as she could, pretty much told me, <laughs> Like you have two kids you don't even get to see. Are you sure you're ready 
to be responsible and have another another kid. This is yet another potential wake up moment. We, we we've we've had hundreds of them where it's like, oh shit. Well, if I want to have kids, got to get my house in order. I can't I can't drink anymore because potentially we could connect the dots and realize that that that's a problem. However, however, that does not happen. She then, I, I kind of stay on that subject for a while over the next few months, maybe a year or so. I, I bring it up every so often. And um, I think what really kept her hesitant about it is I'm not sure I ever brought it up sober. Um, mm-hmm. Not like shit face drunk, but it was always be after a few drinks at the end of the night. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, that's when it would always come up. So eventually we, we had this uh, house that we were renting where it was the first time that her and I actually live together now at this point. So we have this house we're renting with an, another couple roommates. And I said, I want to have, I want to have a kid. And she goes, well, I'm not getting married at a wedlock. She pretty much Beyonce me. She said, you know, if you like it, then you got to put a ring on it type thing. This, this is, this is what really resonates with me. The first time I heard your story is the people approaching you during your destination wedding and, yep. and effectively telling you, Hey, just try to stay sober and don't fuck this up. Yep. It's very reminiscent of my experience that we had the rehearsal dinner the night before my wedding and we partied until bar closed and I felt physically miserable the entire day of our wedding. And then of course that night, you know, I, I proceeded to to get completely drunk at the reception. And in hindsight, it's it's just a marvel that <laughs> of of all the days that I couldn't I couldn't get my shit together, it was business as usual. A hundred percent. And and for me for me out in Jamaica, it was an all-inclusive resort too. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I upgraded so because we were getting married out there with our package and we had enough people going, blah, 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 that they upgraded us to uh the butler suite. Now, this is how my alcoholic mind works. <laughs> so before we even get there, I asked him about the how the alcohol works. You know, what time do the bars close? Blah, blah, blah. They tell us the bars close at 2 a.m., but don't worry. You actually have a fully stocked bar in your suite. You'll be good to go. Them just being good at their job, I never didn't have a drink in my hand. Like I could literally be walking into the lobby of like one random ass. I wasn't even going to the, I couldn't, I might not even be going to the bar yet. I might just be going to grab food or I might just be going to check something out and somebody would come up and uh, we had this drink. There was three drinks that every bartender knew us for a different drink and whichever bartender would see us, even if they weren't at their bar, they would just make the drink made and they would just come up and pop it in my hand. If my hand was empty, it was like crazy. Like I literally never didn't have a drink or a beer in my hand. It was so insane to the point where the rehearsal dinner, I'm pretty shitty. And I'm just like, I'm at that point where I'm like shitty that I'm acting up, but I'm just, just not shitty enough to the point where like, I can comprehend everything going on. And so people start coming up to me and they're like, all right, just, you know, we're having fun. Everything is cool. Just take it easy tomorrow morning, like have fun tonight. But like, Tomorrow morning, we got to take it easy, blah, blah, blah. And I said, all right, cool, but we're going hard tonight. We're going hard tonight. It's like it's like the, the Jamaica bachelor party. Like This is the night we all go hard. So we had drank so much for like the three days prior that this Friday night, I'm not shitting you, we ended up in like this little like corner of one of the, the bars and we're shooting pool and everybody I'm with except one other person is literally like passed out on the sofa because they can't even hang anymore. It's like... 
it's like midnight and they all just want to go to sleep. They're just like tapping out and they're just like, we've just been pretty much drinking all day, every day for three days straight. Like I can't even take this anymore. Like my liver needs a break. <laughs> so they, we, we end up calling it a really early night. I wake up the next morning and people were talking to me and this is actually the first time my mother-in-law ever actually said anything to me. She never called me an alcoholic. She never asked me to not drink. She, she, man, she couldn't have said this any more politely and respectfully. She just pretty much tells me like, look, this is my daughter. This, this is your wedding day. This obviously, this is the first of my children to get married. It's a very special day for my daughter. Just please be on your best behavior. Like she, but I knew what she was saying. Yeah. So I was like, I pretty much, I think I responded to her and I said, I promise I won't be drunk at the, I won't be drunk at the ceremony. I promise. Right. Right. So. I, I actually stayed chill. I think I had one drink that entire day up until the ceremony. I was completely sober during the ceremony um, and everything was beautiful. It was amazing. And I'll tell you, that's honestly the only four hours of the entire trip that I remember crystal clear was from like 1 p 1.30 to like 5.30 that day is pretty much all I remember crystal clear because everything else was a blur. And when I say like you can actually see videos, I think the, the one video catches me starting before it even cuts off. The guy who married us, he pulls us up and we go to sign the papers and he goes, I now officially pronounce you Mr. and Mrs. Rice. And he fucked up my name and I made a joke and I said, oh, he said our name wrong. Come on, I need a drink. Mm. And like immediately <laughs> just like, you know, I thought I was being funny and <clears throat> my wife doesn't drink. So they come over with uh, two cocktails and she's like, no, I don't want it. And like I took hers immediately and like within like 10 minutes, both of our drinks are gone. Yeah. And you know, it just, it immediately started from there and I was just slamming them back again. And that pretty much continued up until the day we left Jamaica. So how long is it after the uh, wedding that you have another opportunity to sort of see the writing on the wall, get yourself straight. And there's this running theme with, with, uh, with cars and crashes and stuff like that. Uh, you had another accident as well that, that gave you a chance to get straight but it didn't click at that time. Two two months later, home run derby of 2017, July 10, 2017. I'm driving my car. Um, we get home from I get home from the bar. I have two friends coming over to watch the home run derby. I remember it was Aaron Judge's debut in a home run derby. We get to my apartment after having a few shots and beers at the bar down the street, and I say, "Shit, I'm out of beer. I need to go grab more." And it was the two guys that were my best men at my wedding, plus another guy that I was just at the bar with. And they pretty much all said like, no, nah, we're good. We're like done drinking. We're okay. You don't need to. And I was like, well, I'm not. So I left them in my house, in my apartment. My wife was working overnights at the time. So she's in the back room sleeping. I get in my car. I go down the street to go get more beer. And I come down the street and out of nowhere, someone's car is in the middle of the road and I get into a car accident. And mm -hmm. I ended up T-boning this car. I get out. I make sure that the lady's okay. After I realized that um, she's physically okay, I start freaking out. Like I call, I call my two best friends at the house, and I'm like, "Wake up, Mallory. Get her down here calmly. Um, I'm about to go to jail." One friend shows up before the other one does with um, my then just wife. We'd only been married two months. And the cop shows up. Finally, I'm sitting on the side of the curb and I'm pretty much crying, shaking back and forth. And the cop goes, what's wrong? What's wrong with you? Don't you see that? And he points at the stop sign. 
and he goes, she ran the stop sign. And when he did that, that was like the super arrogant, cocky, like, you can't touch me. I'm invincible. Light went on. And so immediately it turned in from, oh, shit, I'm not getting a DUI. This cop just said what he said. So I'm good. And so I get like all up in his face where I'm like, well, you're going to get her insurance information, right? Like she just, she ran that stop sign. I just crashed my $30,000 car. Like I need my new car and blah, blah, blah. And I got to work in the morning and all this stuff. My wife was just showing up on the scene at this point and she runs up to me and I'm assuming that she probably thought I was about to be getting arrested or getting a DUI at this point. So she runs up right behind me, doesn't say anything. The cop gets like two inches from my face, maybe even closer, like damn near nose to nose and says, if I were you, I would get in your wife's car and go home right now and call me in the morning and don't say another word. My wife turned into like the world's strongest woman at that point. Like <laughs> I never felt her so strong. She ripped me in her car so fast because she knows me. I would have kept talking. She ripped me in her car so fast before I could get another word out. I called him the next morning. And again, another one of those, like, what are you doing? You could have killed someone last night. Yeah. You got to get your life together. You got to figure this out. You know, how, and I'm thinking in my head, like, how many times do I have to hear this? Yeah. Well, and that's where I was kind of threading the needle before is it's another moment. But what's interesting to me is that, you know, we fast forward a little bit and you guys have Bronx, you, mm -hmm. you, you have your son and you're a couple of weeks in and you're coming home from work and you stop and you have a few drinks, you get home, you tell your wife, you're going to go to bed. She says, no bullshit. No, you're not. I I've been here. I I've been, I've been at the grindstone. I'm exhausted. Take your kid. And this becomes the moment of clarity for you. It's, and this is where I think a lot of people need to realize that just because you miss dozens upon dozens of potential moments of clarity doesn't mean that one is never going to arrive, that, that you're broken and you're unfixable. Like walk me through looking down at him while you're holding him and finally things click for you. A hundred percent. And, and I will actually say too, um, and this is like the last like alcoholic moment that I'll share, but like, even when he was only, when he was born, he was born, um, kind of unhealthy. He had some uh, health complications that we had to deal with that kept him in the hospital a little bit longer. And I remember I was even drinking in the hospital bathroom to that point where like I'd never been an at like drinking in my bathroom at home, hide the booze kind of guy. I was only like really hiding it because you weren't allowed to drink in the hospital and the nurses right. actually called me out on it. Yeah. But I remember like them actually saying like, you can't drink in the hospital. And I said, no, no, no. My friends bought this for me to celebrate because we just had my son. I'm taking him home with me. And like slamming him in the bathroom and like okay. my wife and my mom looking at me like, really, what the fuck is wrong with you? Where are you right now? Right. So, so even like the most beautiful day of your life didn't, yep, didn't do the trick. I think the only day I didn't drink was like the actual day he was born was the only day I stayed sober. Cause by like day number two, I was already drinking and, uh, man, I've never been able to tell this story without crying. And I don't think today is going to be the first day. So bear with me. Uh, my son is 16 days old. Like you said, I get home from work and because I work in the restaurant industry, I'd always been able to do, I'd always been able to lie to my wife and tell her, um, you know, I'm still at work. I'm still at work because uh, it's a volume based industry. So it was always like, 
I could be done from work anytime between 8 p.m. and 2 a.m., depending on how busy we are and anything in between. So many, many times I was able to tell her I'm still at work. Meanwhile, I'm actually at the bar down the street just drinking and come home and it is what it is. Well, on this particular night, I stopped at the restaurant, which I actually work at now. I have a couple beers, literally only a couple beers. I only drank two beers. And I come home and my wife says, it's your turn to feed the baby. And I said, I'm really tired. I just got done working. And she pretty much told me like tough shit. I don't care. She was calling me out and I guess she could already smell the beer in my breath and she knew I was bullshitting and just pretty much like tough shit. I'm going to bed. I'm tired because our son was only 16 days old. So she had a lot to deal with. You know, she had just gave birth, all that stuff. I don't even blame her. So I'm feeding them. I'm late. I'm sitting there and like, I'm sober enough. I had enough booze in my breath to be disappointed in myself, but sober enough to understand exactly what was going on that day. And, uh, shit, I'm just looking in his eyes and he's just like so helpless. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, dude, what the fuck are you doing with your life, man? Like, this is the first time I was saying it to myself. Like, what are you doing, man? Mm -hmm. Like, you don't want to be your dad. You said you're not going to be your dad, and that's exactly what you're doing right now. You are, you're, you're, you're repeating the cycle. You have twins that want nothing to do with you. You already fucked up that relationship. You have people that don't want to hang around you anymore because you're constantly drunk. You have people that only want to hang around you sometimes because you're a shit show and you make them feel better about themselves. You have this beautiful woman who's putting up with your bullshit for so many years. Who knows how much longer that's going to last. And now you have this 16 day old little guy that's depending on you. Like this is like fucking stop, man. Stop, stop, stop. And I just, I had enough. And that was the first time that like, um, I just told him, I said, Bronx, I promise, but I'm going to be better for you. I promise, man. It's, it's wild to me that everybody thinks that that rock, but first of all, I hate the term rock bottom because that's assuming that there has to be a rock bottom. And this is where it's one of those cases that it isn't the Hollywood car crash. You had a couple of potentials for those, but you, you had this beautiful moment where you chose that that was where you were going to have your turning point. I mean, how beautiful is it that when you look at Bronx today, you can say, look, you were my turning point. We on some cosmic level decided that we were going to do this together. Oh man. It's, it's so unbelievable, man. And, uh, yeah, that, that night I just, everything just changed. Everything clicked. I don't even, I didn't even say anything to my wife that night about it. I didn't say anything to anybody. I didn't even say it out loud. I think Bronx is the only person that knew that I was going to quit drinking that day. Cause he was, and I knew he couldn't tell anybody on me yet. So, uh, all right, I went to work the next day. This is a Wednesday night. This is Wednesday, May 30th, 2018, May 31st, that Thursday night I go to work and all is good. I'm actually able to make it through the day without drinking. All is fine. Friday night, a little bit tougher working in the restaurant industry. I'm serving people. A little bit tougher, but we make it through okay. Saturday night was a shit show. I think we had like a wedding 
or a bachelor party. We had something where it was like an organized party and everyone was drunk and whatnot. And uh, I, I just like, by the time I was done working, I had to just like, I had to get out of there immediately. And uh, I actually remember sitting down and I was on Facebook and I put out one of those posts that like, and I hadn't even said why I was going, but I just said, Hey guys, what is your favorite church? Why do you go like, this is what I'm looking for. This is what I'm not looking for. Why do you go to your churches? And, you know, I'm looking for some recommendations on somewhere to go tomorrow morning. Someone throws me life church, Nazareth. I go there the next morning at the end of the service. They go, you know, if this is your first time here, we want you to get this kind of like welcome package and you can come up and you can kind of meet the pastor and you can get this little Bible and this whole thing and whatnot. And really, I just wanted to go up and like, I needed to tell someone because at the time, I don't even think my wife had known I was done drinking yet. I hadn't even told her. Like she had made a comment like, uh, you have the same amount of beers in the fridge. That's not normal. And I think I shrugged it off. Oh, wow. <laughs> how much does that kind of shed light on exactly how close of tabs our loved ones are keeping <laughs> when we're addicted, right? A hundred percent. And I just didn't say anything because I didn't want to say it out loud because I thought about drinking many or quitting drinking many a times, but I never have. So I was scared. I was like, you know, once you say this out loud, there's no going back. Once you say you're an alcoholic, there is no going back. Like you can't. Like you got to be very careful about when and how and who you say this to. So my wife included, I did not want to say this out loud. So I go to church and that service just like, it really, really hit me. And uh, I go to the pastor afterwards and I told him, I said, look, I haven't had a drink in three days. Shit is rough. I don't feel good. You know, I feel sick and I'm terrified and I don't know what to do. And they were opening up a new campus in the next door town. And prior to opening up that campus, they did a once a month service on at an evening time. And this happened to be that one day that month. And so I decided to go to that service. And again, they're closing out worship. The pastor saying all these powerful stuff. And I don't know if this had something to do with the fact that like I kind of opened up to him a little bit. Because again, I didn't even say the words to him that I'm an alcoholic. So I just told him I hadn't, I hadn't drank in a few days and that was it. And so I don't know if that had something to do with it. I don't know if this was already mm -hmm. his planned for whatever reason at the end of that service, uh, when he's doing his worship thing, he, he says, you know, there, there's people out there that might be struggling with drugs, might be struggling with alcohol, might be having marital issues, might be having this and that. Just know that you're not alone. People love you. God loves you. There's ways to get help, this and that. And he kept going on and on and on. And like, I snuck out of there. Service was supposed to be over at like seven. I think I snuck out at like uh, a few minutes early, like while they were doing this and I get in my car and that's the first time I Googled AA meetings in the Lehigh Valley. It brings me to this little site that, you know, asked me for my location and I pretty much find out that there's a meeting starting in just a few minutes and it's like a mile or two away. It's like super close. Like I can actually be there like a minute early still. Wow. And that's, it's wild how that happens. I mean, these, these are not coincidence. So in a couple of minutes, a meeting has started, like the, the universe presents that opportunity to you. How cool. A hundred percent. So I show up at this meeting, I walk in, I sit down quietly and people, I don't want to say they were like looking at me like, or like staring at me, but like they were looking at me like they can, you know, looking back now, knowing what I know about the rooms, like 
I gave off that vibe like shit. This dude is like fresh in. <laughs> like I knew it was. It was just like I. I, I was that guy. So, well, we all remember being that guy. Exactly. And like looking back now with getting some experience, you know, when you see that person who just walks in the room, you, you can almost kind of tell, you know, it's like when they make that joke, like, oh, this person's like, you can tell when someone's in their first day in jail where you can tell when someone's in their first meeting. Well, and the idea of AA is, is that it's, it's a life of service. So I think that if you work in the program, right, your knee jerk reaction is, oh my gosh, this guy's new. My, my role is to help them feel at home here and to to help them help themselves. A hundred percent. So I I sit down quietly, which is not my normal thing because normally <laughs> I like to be the center of attention. I like to have fun. You know, you got to know that Miguel's in the room. So I walk in, I sit down as quietly as I can and people are sharing their stories and blah, blah, blah. And they eventually like someone said something that like really, really hit me. And that was the first time. (laughs) Ah, Shit. That was the first time I ever raised my hand and said, my name is Miguel and I'm an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And I was like, fuck man, you just said it. You just said it. Like you can't go back now. There's no going back. Right. And in that moment, it's not in, in that moment. It's fucking terrifying. Like everybody thinks that this weight comes off your shoulders. For me, that that wasn't the case. That came later. A hundred percent, man. That weight did not come off my shoulders till probably like at least later on that night, maybe. But like while I was sharing and I'm like, I opened up and I just started like spewing out like diary of the mouth, all this stuff I start saying about how much of a shit show I am. And then I realized like, not only did you say you're an alcoholic, but you just told all these stories. So you also can't come back and be like, no, I was just kidding, or maybe I was wrong, or no, like these other alcoholics just heard these stories and they know that they just heard alcoholic tendencies. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a few guys who come and talk to me after the meeting, um, like super awesome people in the rooms do. One guy just like starts like dropping all this knowledge on me. You know, you have a chance to be a 50 percenter. He starts telling me a little bit and I'm like about uh, of a story and I'm like, well, can you finish? Uh, well, what happened next? And well, if you want to hear the rest, come back tomorrow and all of that <laughs> stuff they say in the beginning. But then one guy really said something that really stuck with me. And um, he goes, I heard you share your story. I heard you talk about your twins. I heard you talk about this and that and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, but now is your chance to break the cycle. Now is a chance for your youngest son to not remember you drunk. Even if you drank for the first 16 days he was born, it doesn't matter. He's not going to remember that. Like now is your chance for your son to not remember and not actually see you drunk. And when he said that, it just, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Like this guy is right. It's terrifying, but this guy is absolutely right. Like this is my chance for Bronx to not ever remember me drunk. And I swore that day, man, I got in my car. I probably sat in my car crying for another like 10, 15 minutes. I go home and my wife goes, where were you? And uh, I said, I got to talk to you. And I said, I just left a meeting. And she goes, you had a work meeting on a Sunday? And I said, <laughs> no, I just, I just left an AA meeting. And she like 
dropped everything she was doing. It just immediately became, holy shit, like, what can I do to help? Do you want to talk about it? Like, ultimate support system type thing. Right. And it was just like, that was, and then that was the first time I said it to, you know, family. And then I, I became very, very open about it very quickly. But that was like the first day I ever said it out loud to anybody, strangers, mm -hmm. my wife, anybody. And, and when she shows you that love, you know, then you're, I don't know, this is the case for me. When I felt that love and that support, then I was finally ready to do the work. And so here we are. Three years later, man. <laughs> Almost three years later. <laughs> yes, we got to hedge on that again because we're doing the time hop again. We haven't even gotten into the running stuff, but the good news is that when you qualify for Boston, we're going to talk all about that. But you have to talk for a moment about that prong of your recovery program, about your running, and about staying fit ODAT and the group that you started on Facebook and how important that is for you uh, staying on the righteous path. Yeah, hundred percent. So running just kind of became something that when I got into the meetings, uh, because I sobered up at the end of May, so pretty much I'm starting to go to meetings in June. So it just became one of those things like it's hot out, the weather's nice, whatever the case may be. I'm just like running and biking to meetings. Cause I figured, you know, they told me that being at the meeting is an hour that I'll be sober. And I figured, well, shit, if I can add a half hour to an hour, of a bike ride or a run onto that to and from, then I'm now getting two, maybe three hours of sobriety that day. And mm -hmm. the math just seemed like it made more sense to me. So yeah. I started doing that. And then they tell me, you know, listen, uh, read the big book. So I know me, I have zero attention span and I know I don't retain well when I'm actually physically reading things. So I knew I would want to listen to things. So it became like when I'm out on my bike ride or my run, I would just pop in the AA audiobook and I would listen to these stories. And, you know, so I'd be I'd be out on bike rides where I had every intention to go for like a quick 30 minute ride. And I'd be out for like two hours just riding at super slow pace just because I'm listening to these like AA stories and I'm just getting lost in these people's recovery stories and just finding out that shit, I'm not the only fucked up person out here. And there's other people, you know, and like you said, it's not all Hollywood car crashes and divorces and this and that, like there's a lot of people out there who just, you know, they just had enough. And like you said, rock bottom is I I'm, I'm a firm believer and I can't remember the first person to say this to me. Um, but I've reiterated this so many times on my own podcast, like rock bottom, isn't a, a person place thing or an event. It's when you stop fucking digging. Well, and I mean, there's a lot of folks who are probably wondering whether it is time for them to stop digging, you know, whether they have a legitimate problem. And, and again, <laughs> not a healthcare professional, but the smart money says if they're wondering whether they have a problem, they probably do. However, one of my partners, DUI and behavioral health counseling centers can help them figure out not just whether they have a problem, but the extent of it and the best way to address it. Folks, if you or someone you love might have an issue with drinking, drugs, mental illness, or anger management, it's time to get in touch with my friends at DUI and Behavioral Health Counseling Centers here in Northern Illinois. It's time to set up an assessment. You've got nothing to lose. Depending on your situation, the assessment could be free. If you're loaded, it's going to run you 80 bucks. That's the max. If you're a veteran, an NIU student, or unemployed, you're going to get a break. My friend Ron Parch and his team use their 25 years of experience to build an individualized treatment plan that's confidential and effective. 
They approach people in distress with respect, and I cannot stress enough how important that is to feel respected when you're going through something. DUI and Behavioral Health Counseling Centers has offices in Sycamore, Plano, and Crystal Lake. Check out DUISycamore.com or call 815-895-9000 and set up an evaluation today. Write this down, folks. Call 815-895-9000, visit DUISycamore.com, or you can email DUIBHS at gmail.com. All right, so of course, I'm so grateful for your journey and how far you've come, but let's keep going. Uh, but let's keep uh, talking about the running stuff. Like you at one point were training for a marathon, you got hurt and that kind of put you down a dark path. Can you tell me about that a little bit? So I was, I was, I was training for my first marathon that I was supposed to run the Los Angeles marathon on March 8th of 2000. Uh, 20, I was supposed to run that marathon and I was on my week eight long run of a 16 week plan on January 12th, 2020. And I stepped in a pothole, rolled and broke my ankle. And when I did that, I reached out on Facebook, you know, uh, you know, I kind of told people like, shit, I was training for my first marathon, broke my ankle and, you know, non-alcoholics, non-addicts, this is middle of January in Pennsylvania. So a lot of people were just like, oh, well, whatever, Eat, drink and be merry, drink right? all the new beers, enjoy all the food and <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, shit, this isn't the kind of support I need. And I had yeah. this one bad moment where uh, I went to the six pack shop next to my job after work one night. And I don't normally take my wallet to work because there's no need to. I work for cash tips at the end of the night. So if I don't need anything on my way to work, I'll have money on my way home. And it is what it is. So, mm-hmm. uh, I don't have my wallet on me on that day and I'm just like in this whole like poor me mentality and I'm really pissed off and I'm like depressed and I'm seeing all these other people drink and I can't go running, which is my only outlet. And so I go to the six pack shop next door and I mean, I'm, I'm like a year and a half sober at this point, but I go, I go to the six pack shop. And I try and buy a six pack of beer and I put it on the counter and it's a girl that was working, that is working, who did not work there when I was still in my active days, when I was at this six pack shop, six days a week, like the same six pack shop I was getting beer from when I got into that car accident on my way home. That's right down the street from my apartment. And, you know, I hadn't been there in so long. So the girl doesn't know me and she cards me and I don't have my wallet, so I don't get served. I like to think that if I would have got that six pack, I would have went home and I would have had like a come to Jesus moment or, you know, I would have talked to my wife before I opened it up. I like to think I wouldn't have drank anyway, but it got intervened and stepped in and it didn't even get to that point. Like I didn't even make it out of the store with it. That's wild. Did did you like write the manager and nominate her for employee of the month? Yeah. I leave, I get home and I told my wife what almost happened and she's like, maybe you need to reach out to other people. And I had this like resentment towards AA at the time because of something that happened in a meeting. And so going to a meeting didn't feel like an option at the moment. So I go online. I just kind of create this Facebook page. The first day I created the group, there's maybe five people in the group and that's it. And then the next day I posted on one of the running groups and I said, look, if anybody is dealing with alcohol, drugs, anything like that, and you kind of want a safe place to talk about, um, your, your journey of recovery and fitness, then come join this group. And it's just like, 
it's all amazing people sharing experience, strength, hope about their recovery journey. Not necessarily all just alcohol or drugs too. I mean, there's people in there who are dealing with legit um, overeating issues or Absolutely. mental mental health. We have anxiety, depression. We have a guy right now who's getting ready to run 32 marathons in 32 days for uh, men's suicide awareness. Um, and it's just like people just telling, they're just, they're sharing their journey on a regular. And I love the fact that no matter what demons people are battling or whether they're into ultimate Frisbee or running or swimming or underground basket weaving, man, it's, it's such an inclusive community. A hundred percent. I absolutely love that about it. So folks need to check that out on Facebook. I'm going to link to everything, of course, in the episode description, because people need to check out the podcast as well, where you share a lot of those people's stories. It's incredibly powerful stuff. Yes. The podcast has been like huge for me. It's, uh, it's, it's been like, it's been another like point of therapy as well. It's people sharing their story, what they're accomplishing in the fitness world. Um, I've had you on there. You're a fucking savage dude running a marathon straight out of <laughs> like straight out of rehab onto a fucking marathon course. Like, bro, that's beast mode stuff. And here you are now with your beautiful wife and your beautiful daughters celebrating two years, Cheers, talking brother. to another alcoholic like myself, who's coming up on three years. And man, between the two of us, like, you know, right here is five years of sobriety. You know, I like to think that because of the shit we're talking about today, you know, this is only one day at a time and I'm. I'm a huge, huge, huge advocate for that. But even though it's only one day at a time, I like to think that when we do stuff like this, this is like a day that I'm not going to drink because these are like so many tools in the belt that are like keeping me sober 100% today. No doubt. Without a doubt, man. All right. Well, I'm so grateful that you gave me the chance to share my story. And I'm, I'm so grateful that you really got into the weeds of yours, man. Thanks so much for joining me. And thanks for being such a kick-ass guy. With that, one more cowbell. My man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, brother. I appreciate you so much, man. I love you, bro. Yeah, right back at you, brother. Love you. We'll see you. All right, folks. So no matter where you are in your recovery, your fitness journey, be sure to check out Staying Fit Odat. I promised Migs that as soon as he qualifies for Boston, which is his big goal, to qualify for Boston that we'd have him back on the podcast. I'm sure that there's a lot more stories there that we haven't even explored yet. In the meantime, before we have him back on, you can follow his journey. Again, check out that Facebook group, Staying Fit Odat, O-D-A-A-T, because here's what we're looking at. If you're 18 to 34 and you're a man, you have to finish in three hours in order to make Boston. For those 18 to 34 year olds, let me let me shake this out. You'd have to run a sub seven minute mile to qualify for Boston. And that is just the eligibility point. And then it's a matter of how fast everybody else has run it to see whether you make the cut. And just add one more layer to this. They keep lowering these times. So Migs and I both have the goal of qualifying for Boston someday. And damn it, we're gonna try our best, but we're going to enjoy the process and enjoy the journey. All right. I hope you guys have had a blast until we meet again next Tuesday. Be sure to catch me on Instagram. It's at 40,000 underscore steps every Tuesday and Thursday morning at 8 a.m. Central time. I hop on for an IGTV chat. And until then, folks, if it feels like things are falling apart outside of this space where we're hanging out right here, right where we are, we are always coming together. Love you. Talk to you soon.